This is episode 212 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like Shakespeare, our show is supported by our patrons. Unlock detailed show notes for today's episode, including bonus visual content related to today's topic, like woodcuts, portraits, sketches, and more at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. If you're an educator in Shakespeare history, or you are the biggest Shakespeare history enthusiast who just loves learning more in-depth material with a community of other like-minded Shakespeareans, then consider becoming a member here at That Shakespeare Life. Members get access to our collection of history activity kits and history resource library that includes things like illustrated settings maps, character diagrams, lesson plans, worksheets, a video streaming library full of documentary films, virtual tours, and so much more. We've designed our membership to let you take the history you learn about here on our show right into your home or classroom. You can learn more and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. So if you lost your nose, you had basically two options. Three if you include doing nothing, but two options to restore it. And one of them, which is what Tycho Brahe did, which was to have an appendage made, a new a nose mask. And his was supposedly made of gold. Actually, it was made of brass, which uh, historians found out 10 or so years ago. And he glued that onto his face. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. From blood transfusions to replacement of legs during Shakespeare's lifetime was when medical science was trying to figure out the best way to replace broken or damaged body parts with transplants. Having only just discovered that the heart was a muscle pumping at regular intervals, it was a revolution in medical science to consider each part of the body as a kind of piece in a mechanism that was the human body. We see these new concepts echoed in the work of our favorite playwright, William Shakespeare, when characters like Hamlet and Titus Andronicus talk about the pulse keeping time and the heart beating outrageously. Our guest this week, Paul Craddock, has just published a book on the history of transplant surgery called Spare Parts, in which he details the advancements being made in the medical field during Shakespeare's lifetime. He joins us today to explain what kinds of surgeries were being done, who the famous players were in the medical community of the day, and what kind of materials they used to accomplish these often macabre medical marvels. Paul Craddock is a cultural historian and award-winning author based in London. His debut book, Spare Parts, published by Penguin, was a Daily Mail book of the week in the UK and won the special commendation of the Royal Society of Literature Giles St. Aubin Awards. It will be published in North America by St. Martin's Press on May 10th, 2022. Paul's PhD was a cultural history of early modern transplant surgery. He is a Science Museum Group Senior Research Associate and Honorary Senior Research Associate of UCL's Division of Surgery and a visiting lecturer at Imperial College London. Hello, Paul. Welcome to the show. Hello, Cassidy. Thank you so much for having me. So one of the kinds of transplant surgery that Paul talks about in his book is a skin graft, which was just surprising and almost macabre to me. It was like, oh, wow, did they really pull that off? 
But one of the people that he mentions in this section of the book is Tycho Brahe. Now, Paul, explain to us what it was that Tycho Brahe had done. It was something wrong with his nose and he needed some kind of procedure. You could say there was something wrong with his nose because he lost it. He didn't have a skin graft, but I do use his story to introduce some of the conditions that were around in the 16th century that could cause someone to need a skin graft. So his story is basically that he was at a Christmas party with a friend of his who happened to be his cousin as well. And they had disagreement a mathematical disagreement, which whatever it was, was strong enough to send them both off to a pitch black graveyard uh, where they both drew their sabers and sort of frantically stabbed in each other's direction. And um, so they had a duel and uh, Brahe um, lost and lost part of his nose. Now, losing your nose was quite quite common, actually, um, or at least much more common than it is today uh, in the 16th century. There are many reasons you could lose it um, through dueling, as um, as I've just described, but also through warfare, you know, saber wounds for many wars happening in the period. Um, also, losing rhinotomy, having your nose chopped off was a punishment in many parts of the world. And in the 16th century, particularly in many parts of Europe, um, syphilis would rot the nose. You'd end up with a horrible, what they called a saddle nose. So you, 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 you basically have no nose, um, left and it would be a, a horrific sight, um, reputedly. So if you lost your nose, you had basically two options, uh, three if you include doing nothing, but two options to restore it. And one of them, which is what Tycho Brahe did, um, which was to have an appendage made, a new a nose mask. And his was supposedly made of gold. Actually, it was made of brass, with uh, historians found out 10 or so years ago. And he glued that onto his face. But the other option um, was to have a skin graft. Paul's book outlines skin grafts, including skin of the forearm to replace skin on the nose. And at one point during the process, the patient's arm is actually surgically attached to his face. And this entire process sounds barbaric today. Or to me, it was even rudimentary. Like they can't possibly know what they're doing. This is a giant guessing game here is what they're what they're doing. And so it was really surprising to learn that these were the cutting edge scientific techniques of the period. So Paul, when doctors of the 16th century were performing surgeries like skin grafts, were they just trying stuff out to see what happens or were they actually basing their decisions on previously published anatomy and science textbooks? I mean, were these educated choices to attach someone's arm to their forehead? That's a quite a complicated question, actually, because it is in a sense, cutting edge science, but in, in a very important sense, it, isn't it was it wasn't a result of experiments it wasn't written up in any books until um, the late uh, 16th century in fact transplant surgery in the form of that skin graft that you've just been describing has been around since ancient india so it was described first in the sushruta samhita which is an uh, ancient ayurvedic surgical text and it was considered so sophisticated that you could only treat royalty 
if you could master skin grafting. Now, by the time we get to Shakespeare's period, by the time we get to the 16th century, it had lost its regal association completely. In fact, it was exclusively an operation performed by peasants, by farmers. They didn't refer to any books. They didn't have to have to experiment at all because it was a traditional procedure that had come down uh, the generations. And it was sort of guarded, as it were, by families of secretive surgical practitioners. Now, when it comes to the legitimate traditional medical practices of the time, doctors, uh, physicians knew about skin grafting, but they didn't understand it. They, in fact, Andreas Vesalius, who I suppose would be considered the most cutting edge anatomist of the, of the day, he thought that skin grafting was actually muscle grafting which that would not have worked. So it showed that he didn't understand. And it showed the problem, actually, uh, with legitimate medicine at that in that period. And that was they relied on books. They relied on ancient authority. And, and, and one person's authority more than anybody else's, and that was Galen. And Galen's understanding of the body and how it worked was so far removed from the reality his ideas were based on observations, but his observations, this was second century AD, you know, Rome, he was a physician to the gladiator, his obs gladiators, his observations were based on animals. So you had a completely inaccurate idea of, of what human anatomy was. And to top it off, the books that people used in the 16th century were Latin translations of Arabic translations of Galen's original Greek. So, you know, it was, it bore very little resemblance to the reality. But grafting existed completely outside of that medical system, at least for the time being. Like playing the game of, of telephone it, while you're performing surgery, you can, it's going to go very badly. Yes, if, if well, and it's worse than that, really, because you're also basing your initial observations on pigs and sheep. <laughs> so you weren't, you weren't even basing it on the, the reality of humans in the first place. No, no. Well, you might have got a few glimpses, you know, when, he, when a, a gladiator had his uh, quite, quite serious wounds, let's say. He might have got a few glimpses inside of a body, but you couldn't cut, you, it was illegal to cut them up. In Comedy of Errors 4-4, the character Pench says, quote, give me your hand and let me feel your pulse, end quote. In Hamlet 3-4, Hamlet himself says, my pulse as yours doth temperately keep time and makes as healthful music, end quote. Titus Andronicus mentions, quote, when thy poor heart beats with outrageous beating, and there are several other references to the pulse beating in a person's body, and that pulse keeping time. The contemporary understanding of pulse and how the heart works was different in Shakespeare's lifetime than what we know today. One doctor in particular who made significant advancements towards our understanding of the heart muscle that Paul writes about in his book is a man named William Harvey. Paul writes that Harvey's secret late night explorations led to a significant scientific discovery about the pulse and the heart. Paul, what did Dr. William Harvey discover and how did his work change what the 16th and 17th century science believed about the heart? 
Well, I'll start for, well, I think it, first it's, it's important to understand how medical professionals in the 16th century understood anatomy and the place of the heart and blood in that before we get on to Harvey, because that, because Harvey transforms that, you see. So this classical idea of anatomy and how the body works. It basically derived from Galen again, from Hippocrates, from Aristotle, so the ancients. And it starts with food. So you eat something and then there's a, a kind of metamorphosis. So perhaps there's an Ovid reference here too. There's a kind of metamorphosis of the stomach into a hand, which reaches up the gullet and grabs the food brings it down into the stomach. When it's in the stomach, the stomach concocts it, it cooks it. And this food then is changed, transformed, cooked, <laughs> I suppose, into two different fluids. One is the non-nutritional part, which becomes black bile, and that goes to the spleen. So we'll sort of leave that to one side. The rest is the nutritional part, and that goes to the liver. And in the liver, it's turned into blood. And blood, it, and there it's also imbued with, depending on if you're reading Galen or Aristotle, it will be a vegetative spirit or a nutritive spirit. Basically, that means it's imbued with the power to heal your cuts, to replace bits of you that have been, well, maybe not replace things that have been lopped off, but, you know, replace, uh, damaged, replace in some way, damaged yeah. skin and things like that. Um, and also in generation, in, um, you know, in growth. Now, from the liver, the blood is attracted to different parts of the body. So wherever it's needed. And some of it makes its way to the heart, connected to the lungs. The heart is where the vital breath, the breath of God enters the body. So that's where you get a vital principle added. And some of it, again, ends up in, in the nervous sort of system area. Technically not the nervous system, but it's complicated. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and there it's imbued with the higher sort of uh, a spirit, which is, I think it's, I think he it was, it was called the nervous spirit, but I can't remember actually. I should have looked that up, but it's basically the higher faculties of, of sensation and thought. So that's a system where blood is produced in the body and it makes its way as if it's got a mind of its own. Uh, to wherever it's needed. Not too far off from the concept of white blood cells and infection and blood going to, you know, areas of the body where it needs, where there is a damage or infection, just a little bit of a misunderstanding of exactly how that's occurring. A misunderstanding of the mechanism, which is what Harvey brings. Now, Harvey, he actually did teach these ideas I've just described to his students, but he was also interested in the new science that was emerging. So this is actually technically after Shakespeare's death, but it's, it's, I'll come to why that's important in a minute. <laughs> he taught these Galenic ideas, but he was interested in the new science as well and observing what was happening in the body. For instance, he, he, he'd hold up a shrimp or a prawn or some other shellfish to the light and he'd notice what's happening with his heart. It was doing some kind of musculary movement that's not a scientific term but you know what i mean and he'd, he'd try to observe other creatures hearts as well using more horrific uh, means which i won't describe but if you are interested you could you can read the book 
using these observations, he, he realized that the heart was passing blood through it. And using some calculations, he worked out that if the blood, so if the liver was producing enough blood for the heart to go through the heart at the rate he calculated, it would need to produce 180 liters per day, which it couldn't do, clearly. So the blood wasn't being consumed after all by the body. It must go in a circuit. And he did a few more experiments, uh, like blocking off his blood vessels and sort of you know, work, basically coming to the conclusion that the, the blood circulates the body. It's not the body as a machine quite yet, but it's an identification of a mechanism. That is the, the great discovery that William Harvey made, that blood circulates the body. And it paved the way to understanding the body as a machine. So was Harvey's work ever used to perform a heart transplant for the 16th century? Did they progress that far with their medicine or no? No, I, at least I've not seen any, <laughs> any evidence of it. Um, no organ transplants at all took place until I think 1898 technically, but for solid organs like kidneys and hearts, you're really looking at the 1950s and 60s for successful transplants. Organ transplants did rely on Harvey. That was the first um, of many advances that they came to rely on. But the most one of the things I wanted to say in response to your question about the 16th century and heart transplants was that one of the most interesting parts of 17th century transplants is that they relied on not only Harvey's circulation of the blood, but on older ideas from Shakespeare's time. So Harvey invited us to think about the body as a machine, as a mechanism or parts of it. But scientists still didn't know what was in the blood. So you, they had to reference the classics again. And some people thought the soul was in the blood. Some people thought bits of your personality were floating around in the blood or some kind of quality. So you could have a blood transfusion in the 17th century that was supposed to make you younger because they transfuse the blood of a calf, so an animal to human, or uh, the blood of a lamb to make you calmer if you're insane. Of course, that didn't work. <laughs> and some people, particularly the Catholic population, thought this was possible, plausible, but it was also terrifying because what's, who's to say that if you transfer a a cow's blood, it might make you younger, but it might also make you stupid like a cow. Or if you transfused a lamb's blood, you might start to grow wool. And actually, plays by Thomas Shadwell and uh, St. Cerf, is, I think he's a Thomas as well, isn't he? They included transfusion and made fun of it because it was so ridiculous to many people. But so no, no heart transplants, but 16th century medical ideas did have an important role to play in the 17th century in other kinds of transplant. There is a woodcut inside Paul's book called A Verger's Dream that shows saints Cosmas and Damien transplanting the leg of a black gladiator onto a white verger dated 1495. Paul, were transplants of appendages like arms and legs happening in the 16th century? 
Well, the mechanism that we talked about in relation to skin graft, as I say, is is a well-known mechanism. And the person who stole that technique, this is how it became part of traditional medicine, is that someone called Leonardo Fioravanti stole it from one of these secretive families. And his student's student wrote it up, basically. But that man, Fioravanti, said that a year later, a year after he'd discovered or stolen the secret skin graft technique he was out walking with a friend of his a spanish friend on the coast of he says africa which i think was actually a a province of around egypt or something i actually i don't know exactly uh, it is in my book but i can't remember the exact location at the moment but he was out walking with a spanish friend of his and there was a war on with the ottomans at the time came across some Ottoman soldiers and the same old story, you know, the Spanish friend gets his nose cut off and that falls into the mud and gets all dirty. Fioravanti decides to pick the nose up and clean it with his own urine and then stick it straight onto his friend's face again. And he said that it, you know, he bound it. And he said it, after we took the bandages off in a few weeks, it was miraculously on his face. It's important to realise that Fioravanti was a complete and utter liar. He said at one point that he went, I think it was Florence, uh, he went to Florence and he visited the Hospital of the Incurables and he cured everybody while he was there. So he's a bit of a liar, so I don't know if I trust him on this point, but there were plenty of other myths and legends about arms legs and even heads being transplanted in that period, of which Cosmos and Damien, so that Verger's dream you mentioned, that's probably the most famous. And actually, I think that's, I think I was reading somewhere, that's one of the most painted scenes in Christian art, is that um, leg transplant. But one thing more I want to say about that is in the 16th century, so this is just before Shakespeare's birth, actually, people started to get really sick of these myths about magically transplanted arms and legs and noses. And Francois Rabelais, the um, French playwright, created a character to lampoon it. So he, he had a doctor who comes across a man who had his head chopped off and it's in his, he's holding it in his lap, obviously dead. And the doctor transplants that, or not transplants, but reattaches that head. And he, he describes him sewing it back on again. And the character wakes up and yawns and does a great fart. And that, I'm sorry to any squeamish listeners out there, <laughs> but that's how we know the body is alive. But the, yeah, that's that's what I've got to say about those arm and leg transplants and head. So there were people claiming to be doing them, but they weren't accepted yeah. as medical science. They weren't they weren't respectable procedures going on. No, it was it was sort of a, a stock medieval story, you know, the the some angels or some kind of Christian supernatural being would would perform this miraculous transplant or reattachment. But by the time just before Shakespeare's birth, you know, it was sufficiently ridiculous for Rabelais to make fun of them. Now, you mentioned that in 
his depiction of a doctor that the doctor was sewing the head back on. And I want to ask about medical stitches and material used to make various transplant attachments. The word stitches does come up in Shakespeare's plays, but only in reference to things like side stitches, which are akin to like a cramp. And in Twelfth Night, we do have the phrase laugh yourself into stitches, but we never see a concept for surgical or medical treatment. So Paul, were surgeons stitching their patients back together from a surgery or from an injury, or perhaps using a kind of glue, like what you mentioned, holding Brahe's nose back on his fake nose onto his face. What were the processes or equipment that were in place for legitimate 16th century medical doctors when they were doing different kinds of attachments for their patients? It's possible some use stitches, but the basic technique, as I said a few times now, comes from horticulture. The descriptions that I've read have mostly been of binding, binding things binding two wounds tightly together so that they merge, uh, which is why you'd have your, it's difficult to talk clearly in that position, <laughs> but it's, it's why you would have your sort of bound like that very tightly. So binding really would be the most common way. And in fact, maybe, maybe stitching as well. I think binding mainly, but something I wanted to say in, in response to that was really about Titus Andronicus. So I want to bring in a Shakespeare reference of my own here. <laughs> so in Titus Andronicus, Marcus finds Lavina with her hands and tongues cut off. So after she's been raped, and he describes it describes these two hands as two branches having been lopped and hewed, and also her lily hands no longer able to tremble like aspen over the lute. Was it over a lute? I think it was a lute. And in, in fact, in Julie Taymor's adaptation of that play, Lavina can be seen with, with twigs replacing her, her arms. And I think, uh, sorry, her fingers. And there's a similarity between people and trees that makes physiological similarity and a poetic similarity between people and trees that makes Shakespeare's comparison uh, there something that we can, an audience can comprehend. Because in Shakespeare's time, that resonance between people and trees would have been far stronger than it is for us today. And that's the cultural context in which transplant surgery, modern transplant surgery begins with that poetic and physiological similarity between people and trees that is a feature of, of much classical thought. So Pliny the Elder describes similarities uh, in terms of physiology, but also many um, different tribes throughout the world have had these close relationships with trees. So folk traditions have relationships with trees. They'd set fire to trees. They'd bury people in trees. They'd even, in India, people even tried to sanctify their crops by marrying trees off. So there was a, a very strong relationship between people and the horticultural, the, the agricultural, the natural world that we seem to have lost because we've developed a more sort of detached scientific view. But in Shakespeare's time, that connection 
was very, very strong, and transplant surgery was part of that connection. Hence the binding rather than the, the stitching. Paul's book is an expansive look at the history of transplant surgery, covering from the 15th all the way to the 21st century with a look at early medicine, bloodletting, the transplanting of teeth, appendages, and later with organs as well. It's a really great book. It's a fascinating read, simply packed with diagrams and resources. And we'll link you to Paul's book in the show notes for today's episode. I heartily recommend you check that out to learn more about the history of transplant surgery. Paul, in addition to your book, what are some of the resources you found particularly helpful when you were writing this book or other resources you can recommend a listener use when they want to explore this topic further? Well, when you asked me that question, the first thing to to jump to mind was Ovid, was metamorphosis, because Ovid describes the chaotic potential when the boundary between two bodies no longer exists. So one thing can start to transform into another. And there's this real sense of, of chaos that I think is, is, is present in a lot of, in, in a lot of uh, medicine of the time, but particularly transplant surgery, because you are really playing with that disrupt, you're disrupting that boundary between two bodies. So that would be my first one. Something by Vesalius <laughs> would be my second. So I recommended in the notes that I gave you, Cassidy, I recommended um, Vesalius at 500, which was a a very well-illustrated book (laughs) published on the 500th anniversary of of the publication of the Fabrica. And the third one is Shakespeare and the Four Humours, which is an essay about Shakespeare and I suppose his relationship with humoralism, so a classical uh, understanding of the body. And it's, a, it's an essay on the Welcome Collections website. Thank you so much for these recommendations. We will link to Paul's book as well as these bonus resources in the show notes for today's episode. So if you're researching this topic or you want to explore it more in depth and see some of the background information that went into how they formed their medical opinions for Shakespeare's lifetime, these will be some great places to check out those. Now, Paul, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Your friends in England are very are very correct at the, the tradition of desert island discs and things. This is the book that I would choose. It's Aubrey's Brief Lives. Now I would choose actually I've not I've not read this all the way through so partly I choose this because because I've got a lot of reading to do and you can't really you can't really read it very quickly so I'm I'm thinking it would be a good choice for eternity <laughs> but also because John Aubrey is a gossip that's that's what he is he's a gossip and it's very chatty and you find out about all the private lives of these really interesting 17th century characters. It's a fantastic read that would last you long enough on a desert island. To survive on your desert. I think that's an excellent choice for your desert island for sure. <laughs> so what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Oh, now the next book, I'm afraid there is an embargo on it. I've not, it's not been sold yet either. Um, but I've told I've been told I can't talk about it. But I am working actually on a musical project. 
based on a kidney transplant, which isn't Shakespearean at all. And that, and I can see your confused face there, Cathy. So I'll expand. It was, a, it was a fascinated face that I made, like a musical based on a kidney transplant. No, not, not a musical, a musical project. So it's it's oh, okay. it's, it's a piece of music, fifty minutes or so, and and we're looking for funding for it at the moment, and. Um, that's not a, a plea for funding. Um, uh, you know, we've got our funding sources. We're waiting to hear whether it's going to be funded. But basically, when I when I was researching my book, I watched a kidney transplant, and I, I'm not a medic. I didn't understand what was going on. You know, my PhD was in 18th century transplant surgery. I don't know what's going on nowadays, but I could understand it as a piece of choreography and a piece of music. It had a rhythm. It had a structure. It had an intrinsic beauty. And an intrinsic beauty that you can't really put into words. So I decided instead I would collaborate with some musicians and we would together create a piece of music that took the kidney transplant as a musical structure. So that's to look forward to in August if it gets funded. That sounds fascinating. We will definitely look forward to seeing these next projects coming from you. Paul Craddock, thank you so much for being here today and walking us through your book on transplant surgery from Shakespeare's Lifetime. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Cassidy. Be sure to leave a comment and a rating on your favorite podcast platform to let other listeners know where they can learn something new about Shakespeare. Our show notes for today's episode contain more information on our guest and their research, as well as links to all of the resources Paul recommends that you use to learn more about transplant surgery from Shakespeare's lifetime. You can find all of these links we promised you at CassidyCash.com slash episode 212. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP212. Are you a Shakespeare educator or a Shakespeare history enthusiast that loves being able to really get your hands on the real history from Shakespeare's lifetime with games, recipes, and crafts from the 16th century? I've put together a collection of history activity kits based on Shakespeare's plays that let you eat, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. You can access all of these activity kits along with a community of Shakespeareans by becoming a member of That Shakespeare Life. You can access our digital history activity kits along with with a video streaming library and bonus perks and benefits of being a member. And it all is designed to let you take a piece of Shakespeare's history and experience it for yourself. Our platform is called Experience Shakespeare, and we invite you to try out membership with us today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. Just like Shakespeare, our show is powered by our patrons. If you enjoy the history you learn about here each week, then consider supporting our show. Patrons get access to detailed show notes and bonus episodes. Learn more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.